The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. This is Chatter. I'm Shane Harris. This week, journalist Martine Powers on the empty grave of Comrade Bishop. I'd get emails from people that were like, oh, I'm, I'm from Grenada, and I really appreciate you like talking about this history. And also, like, there's this thing about the bodies that you should know. Have you heard about the thing with the bodies? Mm. Like, the bodies are missing. Like, maybe you should look into that. Essentially, six days after Bishop is killed, the U.S. is now in control of the island. That's where it starts to get complicated, where there's this question of, okay, so when exactly did these bodies disappear and who had control of them when they did disappear? What Grenadians say that I think is a compelling argument is that the U.S. is also, like, obsessed with making sure that we have the remains of people. Grenadians are like, we just want the same thing. Like, we're just asking for one group of people that we'd really like to be able to bury. And Grenadians have felt that the U.S. government in particular hasn't been that helpful in the years since in trying to track down those answers. Martine Powers, welcome to Chatter. Thank you so much for having me. It's lovely to have you here. And we we should tell people, you and I have been uh, sitting across from each other in a podcast studio mm-hmm. many times. Many, many times. It's just that usually it's you asking the questions. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Usually it's, uh, there's some like national crisis or international crisis happening and then we on the Post Reports team at the Post were like, oh my God, who can we get to talk to us in the next 90 seconds right now? And then you are always so game and yes. we're like, Shane, get in the studio get now. The studio like, now. what's happening in Ukraine? What's happening here? What's happening there? And so, yeah. um, so this is a little bit less of a crisis moment, which is good. Yes, that's true. There's, yeah, exactly. It's, it's a little more, it's a little bit, it's a little easier. And it's funny because, um, so, and people are probably guessing Martine is the host of Post Reports, our daily uh, podcast, The Post. That's not why she's here today. We'll get to that in a second. Um, but as you had stepped away to work on this project, we're going to talk about, I had done like a guest host slot and filled in a couple of times, mm. which was super cool. That was fun. That you was really you were fun. amazing too. It was well, I liked doing such it. Such a pleasure to listen. It, you guys are great on our team. But we're here today to talk about your new podcast, which is a new narrative podcast that The Post has produced that you've been working on for two years now? Basically, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, called The Empty Grave of Comrade Bishop. So I'm going to start with the most obvious question. Who was Comrade Bishop? Tell us. So Comrade Bishop um, is a reference to Prime Minister Maurice Bishop, who was the Prime Minister of Grenada in the early 1980s. Um, And he had led a revolution against a dictator. He was a socialist. Some people at the time would have said that he was veering into communism, and that also made him very controversial. Um, But he was this, um, in many ways, incredibly popular, just uh, like charismatic um, and and really uh, beloved leader in Grenada um, who kind of spoke to uh, the the hopes and dreams of a lot of Grenadians, a lot of West Indians, um, but really black people around the world um, who knew who he was and were inspired by his speeches and his ideas and how he kind of fit into the black power movement internationally. Yeah, and a really incredibly forceful revolutionary political leader. We'll, we'll talk about him. So the other part of the title, The Empty Grave. So this is, this. what does that refer to that sets up the, the mystery that is at the heart of this podcast? Yeah, so in October of 1983, um, Maurice Bishop was assassinated. He was killed by other Grenadians, actually members of his own army, um, 
execution style, um, essentially during a, a, an attempted coup. Um, he was killed along with some of his cabinet members and some of his other supporters. And um, the mystery that we have been trying to investigate is what happened to his body? So his body disappeared, the bodies of his cabinet members disappeared, and, and the people who were killed with him. Their families to this day have never been able to bury them. And there's this question of where did his body go? How did it disappear? Um, and because the U.S. ends up invading Grenada a week after Maurice Bishop was killed, um, there are questions about whether the U.S. government had some involvement in the fact that his body is missing. Right. And, and, and that's a really interesting part of the international intrigue of it. And, and for people in Grenada, the missing remains of Bishop and the people who were assassinated along with him, it's not a trivial matter. I mean, this is, a, this is very much like an open wound and kind of a, a subject of speculation and theorizing and grief in the society. Yeah. Talk, talk a little bit about that. that. That comes across in the story. But how does this loom in the sort of public imagination in Grenada today? Yeah, well, I mean, and we'll talk more about this, but in the aftermath, especially of this U.S. invasion, just talking about the revolution was not a thing that people did. There was just so much trauma there, and um, it was, like, truly the most turbulent, chaotic week, like, in the history of this country. Um, and so it just feels like no one wanted to talk about it for a while, and then after a couple of decades, it became more of a source of open conversation where there were these like lingering questions around what happened to Bishop's body, but also like, what did this what did this period mean to us? Like the Americans who came and like, quote unquote, rescued us, were they our rescuers? Maybe they weren't our rescuers. Like maybe I feel differently about this than I did 20 years ago. And like, what does this period represent? What did Maurice Bishop represent? He was incredibly beloved. And also there were plenty of people in Grenada who uh, say that their lives were worse and not better because of Maurice Bishop and that there's been this kind of rethinking or or, or just grappling with what this this four-and-a-half-year revolutionary period in this tiny Caribbean island, what it means to that island and what it means to the rest of the world. Um, and that I think a lot of those feelings are wrapped up in this one question around his body. Yeah, and where is he? And, and, and let's talk about that revolutionary period because that leads up to you know, the U.S. invasion in 83, which I think most listeners of the podcast will remember Grenada probably for that. Like they remember maybe where they were, they've read about it in history. Mm -hmm. But talk a bit about, you know, when when Bishop comes to power, what's it like in Grenada and why does he succeed as this young leader there? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot of it is, I think, really comes down to personality. Mm. We, especially because Grenada is so small, I mean, people who knew Bishop as an adult are generally people who also knew Bishop as a child. And so we just heard all these stories about him, even in high school, like being the president of like the student council and the school newspaper and the captain of the tennis team and um, that everyone just uh, admired him, loved to be around him. Um, and that really uh, extended into his young adulthood. He went and lived in London for a while and then came back to Grenada. And he was from this middle class, maybe upper middle class family who were not necessarily like uh, talking about like revolutionary ideas at home, you know, that they were um, lighter skinned, that they were kind of upwardly mobile. And I think that a, a family that was generally interested in, you know, here's our one son, we want him educated in London to become a lawyer, come back, be a fancy lawyer and like have a nice office and uh, yeah. kind of live that sort of life in Typical Geneva. Typical middle class kind of dream and aspirations. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But when he goes to London, he starts to become taken with these ideas around um, socialism. And this is and, in the seven, mid-70s? Yeah, yeah, yes, mid-70s, yeah. yeah. Um, and Marxism, and he meets, you know, he meets Cubans, and he, he meets Americans in the Black Power Movement, and he meets other West Indians who are trying to stage revolutions in their own countries. And he also experiences firsthand a lot of the discrimination against Black people and especially West Indians in London. And that gets him thinking about, like, what, what are we trying to prove to all these white people? Like, why are we trying to kind of support a system that doesn't see us as an important part of that system? And so when he comes back with all these revolutionary ideas and connects with other smart, well-read, charismatic young people, um, they, you know, really kind of capture the imagination of this country um, and are, um, are able to 
commands a, a pretty incredible amount of support um, and to, to, to basically say we should try this a different way. We should start our own government um, and that we should do things differently. You have these some really wonderful stories of people who knew him. And as you mentioned, it was such a small community that kind of everybody felt like they knew each other. And one of the stories that stuck out from when he was in London is he's remarking on uh, uh, how there's like a ceremony, I think, where the queen is present. Yeah. And, and, the, and the people who he's with don't show nearly the kind of deference and respect to Queen Elizabeth yeah. as people would in Grenada. Yeah. And it's kind of this moment of like, why are we bowing down to this sovereign yeah. if, if the people in England don't seem to be taking her that seriously? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, especially back when Bishop would would have been a kid. Um, so like, I guess, 50s, 60s, um, you know, like a member of the royal family comes and visits your island maybe once every five years, once every 10 years. And when they come, it is a huge deal. And you have basically students from every school in the country who are standing out in the hot sun for hours, like waiting to see a glimpse of the of the queen. And everyone's supposed to be standing up straight so that they could show the, the queen or the princess or whatever, like how... Um, how like together this island is and that he kind of apparently in, in letters back to his family um, was reflecting on that, that he goes to the UK and everyone's like, yeah, it's we don't stand at attention and make a big deal every time you hear God save the queen and um, that he just felt like, you know, that they'd sort of been had in yeah. some ways. Was it, how supportive were his parents and his family of this revolutionary posture that he was taking, I mean, which was not at all why they sent him off to London? Yeah, I think at the beginning they had questions, um, but at least from what I understand and from the people that we've interviewed, that um, once he came back and it was clear that what he was, these ideas that he was um, putting forth were really resonating with Grenadians. That they were, that they were largely supportive of of him and 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 of the others that he was working with. Um, the other part of this is that there was this this. Um, I mean, I, I think a lot of people would call him a dictator in Grenada at the time, uh, Sir Eric Gary. Mm-hmm. If you ever hear him talk, he has this like. Shakespearean accent, you know, like very, very like trying to sound British. Um, mm-hmm. And he uh, he had been uh, the the premier of Grenada. And then when Grenada got independence, he automatically became the prime minister. Um, and that was there were protests and um, and strikes around that because people thought that Eric Gary uh, was corrupt. Um, people, you know, he had a what people call the mongoose gang, which was essentially like his own group of quote unquote thugs who would, you know, go around, beat people up, um, sometimes kill people if they were sort of out of step with what Eric Gary wanted. Um, and so I think a lot of the reasons why Maurice Bishop's family was willing to support him in this uh, revolution was because they were seeing, seeing Eric Gary and what he was doing to the country and were um, uh, adamant that something needed to change. And you have some great audio of, of Maurice Bishop speaking and giving speeches, and he's, yeah. he's a really marvelous orator, and you can see how he understands the crowd, and he can kind of do the back and forth. And there's one, there's a speech that he gives, I think it's in New York, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. So he's come to the United States. He's gotten a pretty popular big turnout. How are people in the United States regarding this young, charismatic, socialist, black power leader at that time? Because it seems like he comes to New York and Americans are not necessarily down with this. Yeah, yeah. Or, I mean, I would say specifically white Americans or Americans. Yeah, the administration. Who, who like, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> the Reagan administration. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, no, the Reagan administration was definitely not down yes. with this. Um, there is a speech that uh, Reagan gave from the Oval Office in early 1983, like primetime television, where he's talking about the threats that are looming with the communist, you know, this is like very like peak Cold War yeah. stuff. Um, and then and he's like listing all these things that are happening in Cuba and Nicaragua. And then he mentions Grenada and talking to Grenadians who hear this, like even they're like, wait, what? We are on <laughs> national television. America. Like we are like one of the big threats facing the U.S. Um, right. And uh, and so so. You know, from from that point forward, you know, there's a sense that Reagan is very antagonistic to Grenada, um, and I think you know you could argue that there is some fairness to that, right? That the the Cuban Missile Crisis hadn't been that long ago, and mm-hmm. that um, that the imagining that Grenada could become another Cuba was part of um, what was animating yeah, what you Soviet were hearing. base in the Caribbean. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Um, but that uh, once Bishop comes to the U.S. for a visit. Um, he uh, is trying to get a meeting with Reagan and 
the White House is like, no, you are not going to get a meeting with Reagan, especially because you're essentially besties with Fidel Castro. Uh-huh. And um, Bishop is clearly very frustrated by this. And then he, he goes to um, Hunter College um, where uh, he gives a speech to a largely Caribbean-American audience. But they're, you know, they're like black Americans or white people. They're, you know, all, all kinds of um, like people who just are into his ideas are mm-hmm. showing up to this thing. It's mm-hmm. packed. There's like an overflow crowd outside listening on speakers. Um, and the way that he can kind of command this room and make it sound so silly that the U.S. government thinks that Grenada is a threat, but at the same time is really talking about what is threatening about Grenada, which is this is a country of English speaking black people who mm-hmm. are doing things our own way, and that we aren't going to take BS from any other country, including the U.S. They can't tell us what to do, and that uh, Grenada and other Caribbean islands are often thought of as, you know, these these islands in America's backyard. And the line from the speech that everyone remembers is, you know, we are nobody's backyard. Mm. Um, And uh, and it's just, it's powerful for the people in the room. I mean, even watching that speech the first time, I remember seeing it, and that was one of the moments where I was like, oh, this should be in a podcast. Really? <laughs> like the way that he speaks is so powerful um, and it's so palpable when you hear him. Yeah. What, you know, why his ideas resonated with so many other people. Yeah. And he, in the oration, there's a musicality to his voice. I mean, he's mm-hmm. just kind of, he seems kind of like born to the role. I mean, you know, right. Yeah. How, obviously, you know, President Reagan was, you know, suspicious of, well, suspicious of putting it mildly, really accusing Grenada of essentially trying to become this you know, communist outposts, and he made a big deal about the fact that they were building an international airport and Mm -hmm. questioning why do they need such a big airport? It must be because they want to land military planes. How much of of, of the antagonism from the Reagan administration was also fueled by the fact that he was a black leader? I mean, is Mm -hmm. is it fear of socialism and communism, or is it that plus the black power element? How do they kind of combined together for Reagan. Yeah, I think that's a that's a pretty big question that you could argue over. I, for Grenadians, um, I think they felt a lot of it was about the fact that this was a black country. Mm-hmm. And what did that say to black Americans um, about what they should be tolerating from their own government? Right. Um, and even, you know, there's a couple lines where uh, uh, Maurice Bishop is sort of like, poking fun at the experiences of of black Americans in the room where, you know, he's describing here are all the things um, that we have been able to achieve in terms of healthcare and education. And like you in the U.S., like, can you see a doctor for free whenever you want? Um, uh, And like paid for by the government. Um, So I think what honestly Maurice Bishop liked to talk about was that, oh, this isn't about communism. This is about black people being powerful. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, you know, the U.S. government would probably argue with that. At some point, um, Maurice Bishop cites this like secret State Department report that's like uh, that apparently says um, that the U.S. government is worried that that. English-speaking black people in in Grenada can have a dangerous appeal to um, black Americans. And uh, we went looking for that report, and we didn't find it. And I I think there's reason to be skeptical about whether that actually was a secret State Department report. Mm -hmm. But um, it's part of what – it's part of the message that Bishop was saying, um, and it clearly – was resonating with people when you hear the reaction of the crowd there. Um, and it's just, yeah, you, like you can tell that 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 for him is working as an argument. And that's why he wants to bring it up again and again. Yeah. And again. So 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 Bishop becomes prime minister and and, and he he's there at, at, at a time of this, you know, tremendous antagonism with the United States. But they're trying to build an idea of a more just society and, you know, in a socialist society in Grenada. Talk about the period, though, that leads up to his assassination. Why was he dangerous? Why did he have enemies? Yeah. Well, a lot of it comes down to, I would say, to Grenada's relationship with the U.S. So things are, you know, there's there's an increasing amount of antagonism. Um, Reagan's talking about Grenada on national television, how this place is a big threat. And so it feels like Grenada is almost under attack, right? That, that th- there's this feeling internally of like, we need to 
be stronger to be able to defend against the fact that the U.S. is trying to undermine us. They might even invade our country at some point. I mean, you know, they thought about the Bay of Pigs in Cuba. Could that happen to us? Um, people talked about um, there was a, a military exercise that happened um, slightly earlier in the 80s called Amber and the Amber Deans um, that was basically like war games that the U.S. was, was doing that uh, where they practiced an invasion of a Caribbean island that sounds sort of similar to Grenada and the Grenadines, which is another island chain. Uh, just a bit north, um, but that that they saw that as like, oh, the U.S. is practicing an invasion of our country. It's going to happen, and so there's a sense in, in Grenada of like, okay, we need to like get serious about uh, counter revolutionaries, about people who might be trying to bring down um, the uh, the revolution from the inside. There was a bombing at some point where. Um, uh, several children were killed. Um, they blamed that bombing on the CIA, though there's not necessarily um, evidence of that. But uh, but because there's this feeling of like, okay, we have to crack down. We have to find the counter-revolutionaries. We have to root out the people who are giving you know information to the U.S. Um, people start turning on each other, mm-hmm. and it starts to be this situation of like, well, are you truly like, are are, are you with the movements, or mm-hmm. are you, um, or are you not? And that starts to exacerbate some like internal tensions, and then all of a sudden you have people who are looking at each other with a lot of suspicion that are supposed to be allies, and those suspicions just start to spin out of control, and then you have these different factions within the government, and um, which ones are plotting to to take over the government, yeah. kill the other ones. And it's just um, it's just like this escalation that happens uh, up until le- leading up until October of, of 1983. And what ultimately happened was Bishop was executed um, by uh, a group of soldiers who at least prosecutors argued in court later that his former deputy prime minister was the person who ordered his execution. Um, and so it's just, it's like this very sad story of people who literally grew up together. I mean, Bishop and his deputy prime minister, um, a guy named Bernard Cord, as teenagers, they were like doing speeches together in the market square and they were buds who were exchanging all these cool ideas of the stuff that they were reading. And here you are, you know, not that much later where um, they are, yeah, uh, that, 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 uh, Things spin out so out of control that that there is an execution. And it really, I mean, it, the the personal nature of this. I mean, it's something that's so powerful in the story, as you said. I mean, these are these are two young men who grew up with one another, and they're making these just incredibly fateful decisions. You know, you were able to go back and find people, you know, who were there. Sometimes relatives of people who had been killed. Was it difficult to get them to relive this, you know, in an interview? Were they eager to talk about it? Did they not want to talk about it? I would say there was a big range. But honestly, I I do think it was, in most cases, somewhat difficult, um, in part because a lot of them feel like they have talked about it so much over the years, um, especially in, you know, after, like, the late 90s when things started to open up a little bit more and there were more efforts to kind of talk about this openly, that they, they have a ceremony every year where they, you know, honor the people who, who were executed and some of the other people who um, were killed in the circumstances of that day, which we could talk more about. But um, but at the ceremony every year, it's like that's the, that's the moment when people have to kind of, like, share again the story of where they were on October 19th and who they saw killed and what happened and when they heard the guns go off um, at the fort and they knew that Maurice Bishop and their family member uh, was dead. Um, And it's just, it's a lot for people. And um, I think it, yeah, it took a, honestly, I think what the, the case that we were able to make that I think got more people to talk to us about this was that we're not just trying to tell the story of the revolution again, um, though I would say that in the U.S. that story isn't told enough and that, like, more Americans need to hear that story. Yeah, I mean, it was news to me. Yeah, 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 yeah. But we're also trying to solve this mystery around what happened yes. to the bodies. And, like, this is all in service of being able to tell a story that leads to um, us kind of unpacking uh, what is what, what information exists that could provide some answers and could prompt more people to to provide answers in the future potentially. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so, so that's how we kind of had to convince people to, yeah. to share the story again. Yeah. And talk a bit about that day, October 19th. I mean, ha- kind of how does it begin? And, it, and it's, it's, it's very sudden. And, you know, and you kind of deal with this fairly early on in the podcast, too. But what were sort of the events of that day that led to, to Bishop and so many of his colleagues being uh, 
assassinated. Yeah. So on the morning of October 19th, Bishop is under house arrest um, at his house. Uh, his uh, soldiers are guarding him there. He's been there for a while. Um, and uh, basically his supporters in the country were like, this is crazy. This is our prime minister who's under house arrest, like from the mil- by the military. Th- th- this This doesn't make any sense. Like we need to go free him and like send a message that this is who we want as our prime minister um, and that these other people who are trying to take over the government, like we're not tolerating. And so this really started um, as essentially a student protest that you had uh, kids, like 12, 13, 14 year old kids um, who were deciding that they're not going to go to school and they're going to like gather in the big squares in town um, and they're going to go up to the house and they're going to break open the gate and they're going to free Maurice Bishop. And it basically worked. Like they get him out of um, 12, house Amazing thing of 12-year-olds being so like um, politically minded. Yes, exactly, exactly, exactly. American 12-year-olds aren't usually worrying about this. Yeah, stuff, but that but was that was such a big part of the, the spirit, revolution yeah. is that you had all these kids who were like so engaged yeah. with this and who were so excited about it. Um, but so, yeah, this big group frees him from house arrest and then takes him to, uh, you know, they're sort of like marching through the streets and takes him to this fort that's right in the middle of town. Um, And he uh, and it's also the headquarters for the military. And so he goes there and he's like, okay, like this is it. I'm going to we're going to regroup here and then I'm going to make a big speech, you know, telling the world like, yes, I am still prime minister. Um, And he's there with his supporters and cabinet members and then basically this other faction of the government and with with members of the military supporting them. They um, basically like reattack the fort or, you know, counterattack and that they kill a bunch of people in the process. They're shooting at the masses. They're shooting at um, Bishop and others. Um, It's a like incredibly chaotic, horrible moment. I mean, people describe even now this fort, it's sort of positioned um, kind of on a on a hilltop that overlooks the rest of downtown. Um, I mean, it's a honestly beautiful location. And there are all these stories of people who are trying to get away from the shooting who uh, jump over the side of the mm. fort and fall to the boulders that are 50 or 60 feet below. Mm. Um, and so that all happens. And then finally, Bishop and his cabinet members um, are marched out. Um, uh, the rest of the fort is kind of has, has mostly emptied out. And then they uh, the, the soldiers um, tell Bishop and and his supporters to stand up against a wall and then they shoot them with machine guns, mm. essentially. Um, and what was horrible is that not everyone could see what was happening, but because this is right in the middle of downtown, you have all these stories of people who are at the hospital right next door or in their houses or um, uh, like near to this fort who can hear the machine guns um, coming out of nowhere and just that feeling of knowing that like this this is the sound of Maurice Bishop being murdered. Yeah, um, yeah. It's a really. I mean, you can understand why it's so traumatic for people to talk about. Yeah, him. completely. And and so this then begins the mystery. Right. Yes. Of what happened to the body. Now, I don't. I I want people to hear the podcast, so we're not going to give away too much. <laughs> but give us some sense of of what happens next, and you know the idea of you know the empty grave, and kind of the the theories that start to then move about in Grenada of what of what the heck happened here, because this is also where the U.S. government starts to play a pretty significant role. Yeah. Yeah. So basically. In the direct aftermath of the shooting, the bodies, already family members of these people are like, We're, no, nobody's giving me back the bodies, right? Like, and it's, it's a chaotic, chaotic situation. Um, the, there's a curfew that, so no one is allowed to leave their houses. So there, like, there's a lot that's going on beyond just these bodies are missing, but these family members have already started to ask for, essentially ask Bishop's murderers, please, can you at least give us the bodies back? Um, so, uh, so that's essentially the situation for a week, and then the U.S. invades. Reagan decides, you know, there's this level of violence happening in this country that is intolerable. There are also Americans who happen to be living on this island. There was a med school, which we can also talk about, um, but that there were hundreds of American med school students who Reagan thought needed to be rescued or needed, uh, that the U.S. needed to make sure that they weren't taken hostages. And that's um, a big part of his public justification on yes, this, too. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That these med school students, it's going to be the next Iran hostage crisis, and we right. need to prevent that. Um, so the U.S. invades, and then um, 
essentially six days after Bishop is killed, the U.S. is now in control of the island and in control of um, what's going on uh, with the government, with, um, with law enforcement. And so that's where it starts to get complicated, where there's this question of, okay, so when exactly did these bodies disappear and who had control of them when they did disappear? And there's, there's this window at the beginning where it's like, okay, the people who murdered Bishop are in control of the island and maybe something happened then. Then there's this later window where it's like the U.S. is in control and maybe something happened then. And we've been trying to look at both those windows and figure out what what do we know about what happened to the bodies first and where they went and then what happened to the bodies after that and uh, how can we pin down like who's responsible here and then and then where did the bodies go like where where are they? Um, and maybe, you know, they were thrown in the ocean is a theory that a lot of people have put out. Um, so maybe they don't exist anymore. Maybe they do. Um, and that's, yeah, that's what we've been trying to figure out. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems, too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule and, of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. And this is where the podcast really it becomes a detective story, and, and you know, and you and your producing partner Ted Muldoon are you're down there in Grenada, you're talking to people, you're going through government documents, you're finding people, Americans who were there at the time. I mean, did it feel kind of like you were, you know, like kind of doing a private investigation sometimes? Like we're going to solve this? Yeah, it's what the the biggest frustration honestly was the fact that this was 40 years ago and you have people for whom the events around October 19th and and around the disappearance of the body that this is all like burned into their brain. And there are people who are like, "Oh, I barely remember yeah. a lot of this," especially people in the US military who were like, "I showed up in this random country for 5 days. Yeah. It was weird. I didn't really understand what we were doing there." Yeah. Um, and like here are the two memories I have. And it's like how most that, Americans remember it. It's like, "Oh yeah, we did that for a week, right?" Yeah, exactly. It's like invading Panama. It's like, "Oh, that happened." Yeah. yeah. But then you're finding people with memories where they're like, oh, yeah, and then we, you know, showed up to this pit and, the, you know, they're, we're, we're collecting some bodies from the pit. And it's like, oh, th- that – you don't understand. That's actually That's an it. incredibly <laughs> important memory <laughs> that now I need to understand every detail yes. about because yes. the details could mean, you know, either X scenario or Y scenario. Right. And so, yeah, it has been a lot of that the detective work of tracking down people yeah. and, you know, like a, a, a Jamaican – soldier remembering the, the last name of some American that he interacted with. And now we're trying to, 40 years later, track down this American who he talked to. And uh, it's, um, yeah. <laughs> Did you have the experience that some investigative reporters have with their subjects where they look at you and like, why the hell are you so interested in this? Yes. Yeah, exactly. Um, especially Americans who, I mean, I think Grenadians, of course, are like, oh, yeah. This I get is, it. Yeah. People talk about this all the time. But, um, but Americans, I think, are uh, even Americans who spent time in Grenada. Um, are like, wait, they never found his body? Like, I didn't know that. Or why are people asking questions about this? But what Grenadians say that I think is a compelling argument is that the U.S. is also, like, obsessed with making sure that we have the remains of people who um, were killed, especially abroad. You know, the fact that there are still so many efforts to identify um, uh, uh, people who died in combat in yeah. World War II or Vietnam yeah. or whatever. And Absolutely. Canadians are like, we just want the same thing. Like, we're just thing. asking for one group of people that we'd really like to be able to bury. And Canadians uh, have felt that the U.S. government in particular hasn't been that helpful in the years since in trying to track down those answers. Which certainly adds to a lot of the, 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 this, the theory that maybe the U.S. government had something to do with disappearing mm-hmm. his remains and others. Mm-hmm. Um, so 
taking a step back from the story for a second, talk about how you got interested in this story. I can remember, I think, two years ago, you kind of like laying this on me like, I got this idea, yeah, uh, which, which was super intriguing. But t- talk about how you knew about Bishop, the, mm-hmm. what about this particular part of the story kind of, you know, stuck with you and why you decided to to go off on this journey. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, so um, my, I, I don't think I would have encountered this story at all if my parents didn't live in Grenada. Mm-hmm. Um, so I'm my parents aren't from Grenada. I'm not from Grenada, which I always feel like I have to make clear. But my mom is from Trinidad, which mm-hmm. is like the next island town from Grenada. Right. Um, and my parents retired about seven years ago, and then they decided that they were going to retire to Grenada, which if you have seen pictures of this place, you'll understand why, because it's incredibly beautiful. beautiful. And yeah. essentially anywhere you are in the country has like a great view of the ocean. <laughs> um, but uh, once they moved there and kind of got set up and started to like reconnect with friends or make new friends, I'd go down and visit them. And it was always like, it was like they'd have people over for dinner. And then, you know, there's like one or two or three rum punches. Uh-huh. And by the time dinner's over and it pe- like that's when like the like quote unquote old chat gets uh-huh. serious. Yeah, yeah. And then and people would start talking about this stuff around like Bishop and the revolution. And were there spies in Grenada? Like there must have been like the U.S. must have had CIA here. Like I, you know, I there was this guy that I always interacted with and I always thought maybe he's a spy. And so it's mm-hmm. just like stuff gets mm-hmm. aired. And then you hear about this question around the bodies and like, well, I, you know, a friend of a friend told me that he actually saw that they did this other thing or that maybe the bodies were actually buried on the other side of the island or they were <laughs> taken to carry a coup or, you know, like it's just and, and having basically explored all these theories now in what I think I'm confident in saying is the most rigorous yes. uh, attempt. Yes, ever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, you know, like not all these theories hold up, but I think the fact that they um, were coming up a- again and again was really intriguing to me. And um, and then I actually did a, a story about the, um, the revolution and the end of the revolution and the executions um, for NPR uh, Throughline, which is a wonderful podcast of people that I admire so much. And uh, I was so lucky to be able to work with them on telling that story. And so even in doing that story, I'd get emails from people that were like, oh, I'm, I'm from Grenada or my parents are from Grenada. And I really appreciate you like talking about this history. And also, like, there's this thing about the bodies that you should know. Have you heard about the thing with the bodies? Mm. Like, the bodies are missing. Like, maybe you should look into that. And at first, I was like, I don't really know how much there is that I could bring to this because it feels like this is 40 years ago. I don't know, you know, I don't know the people who would have been in a position to interact with um with like what was happening to the bodies right after they were executed. But once I started to do a little research, I was like, oh, wait, like a lot of this stuff is documented or like these accounts actually do make sense or like there are real questions here that are legitimate questions that have some kind of backing to them. Um, And I feel like the further I went, the more I was like, well, has, has anyone really asked the U.S. about this? And they have asked the U.S., but they've asked in sort of like general, like they just kind of go to the to the State Department are like, do you have the bodies? And the State Department's like, no, we don't. No. We don't know. We don't know where the bodies are. We don't have the bodies. Why are you asking us? But that, you know, but the, that I could see the kind of like avenues of like, oh, but has anyone asked these people and like this particular mm-hmm. group in the military and this particular group in the State Department and like have people just like gone and heard what they had to say and what they saw? And that's when I felt like, okay working at the Washington Post yeah. and having colleagues who are great in, yeah. um, you know, helping to, like, guide that kind of uh, uh, reporting and thinking, like, maybe this is worth us kind of taking more seriously and really going at it and trying to figure out if there are more answers to be gotten here. Yeah, because it's a real reporting project at that point, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you say, yeah, because you have all of these questions that you can try to answer. It's not necessarily a matter of sifting through What's the more reasonable story I heard around the dinner table? It's like yeah. I can actually interrogate these questions. Yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. What made you want to do it as a podcast? I mean, obviously you were hosting a podcast at the time, so that's the natural vehicle for it. But you mentioned, you know, hearing that speech that Bishop gave at Hunter College and in the sound of his voice. Mm-hmm. I mean, was there something innately appealing about this as an audio project, an audio story? Yeah, I think that was part of it. I mean, I just I feel really proud of having a mom who's a West Indian and I love her accent yeah. and I love the accents of my family members. And I just like the idea of making a Washington Post podcast in which you hear like every different type of, you know, of 
Grenadian, yes. Trinidadian, uh, Barbadian, uh, Jamaican accents. Yes. I mean, I think it's, um, yeah, it's just, it's, uh, I, I, I was very enamored with the idea of, of yeah. being able to make something like that. Um, but I think a lot of it was also about the reporting process. And I know that what I love hearing in podcasts is a sense of taking you kind of behind the scenes and following along with a host or a narrator or a reporter as they're trying to figure out what they know and going down wrong turns and then getting to the right place and having surprising moments. And my hope was that with this, we could do a little bit of that, of um, of bringing listeners on a journey with me and with uh, my reporting partners. You mentioned Ted Muldoon and also Renny Spernofsky, um, yeah. like coming with us as we're trying to figure out who knows what and like tracking down these these people from 40 years ago who are like how did you find me it's been 40 years since anyone's asked me about that amazing right that must be that's very gratifying probably as a reporter too that Mm -hmm. you get to like somebody's happy that you're taking their story seriously yeah 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 yeah, totally and you i'm glad you mentioned the the different accents too because it's one of the things that's so enjoyable about hearing the voices is you do like I'm thinking it's not just me, right? I'm hearing all of these subtle variations and differences. There's the there's the one guy you found. I'm going to blank on his name, but you tracked him down. He wasn't on Grenada. He was on a different island. Yeah, um, uh, Barbados. Yeah, and you found yeah. him at his church. Yes, and yeah, his, yeah, yeah. his accent almost sounded Irish. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it had actually a brogue your, to it. Yes, you're picking up on wow. You can tell the differences in Caribbean accents. But that was so cool <laughs> because you kind of. And, but that also helps like situate, I think, the listener because you do kind of feel like you're hopping around to these different locations and it's kind mm-hmm. of you're following along as you guys are sort of hunting down the path and everything. And there's the sound of the frogs in the background, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of becomes part of the, you know, the almost like the soundtrack. Well, that I mean, that was honestly a problem for us because um, and so if you listen to the first episode, there's this moment where we like, we basically play the sound of the frogs. And then I talk briefly about like, yeah, and there are these frogs that, that you can hear anywhere on the island and you can hear you can even hear them when I'm when I'm. You know, in DC, talking to my parents on the phone, and you can hear them through WhatsApp. But the the problem was these frogs are in all of our tape. Like, Everywhere. Anytime that we interviewed, like <laughs> the moment an interview went past 5 p.m., all of a sudden there are frogs in the background of this interview. Now um, they come through the windows, and also you know it's Grenada, so like everything's very open, and people yeah. um, tend to have houses that just you can't like block out all the sound, and so. Yeah. So we were just we just had to explain why these frogs are in all yeah. of the tape. Like even the the um, you know very somber announcements made by the general saying like Maurice Bishop has been has been killed. Like you can hear the frogs in the background of that tape. Um, so they're they are everywhere. It's just the music of Grenada. Yeah, you know. Yeah, yeah. and yeah, we should yeah. say a word too about the music too because I think Ted did some original music and some mixing for it, and you had others too that did original yeah. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So well, so Ted did the um, did uh, the sound design and he did a little bit of the music, but we were able to um, uh, hire uh, a. Um, a musician in Trinidad, um, Kishav Chandradath Singh, who is incredibly talented. He is a um, like a soca artist, and if you don't know what soca is, it's like it's kind of modern, very like poppy Trinidadian music. It's it's just it's great music that I love. It's like all upbeat, and it's music that you dance to. And um, and Kishav like plays at music festivals and stuff. So that gives yeah. you like a sense of um, of of his, I guess, usual audience. And so when we were able to connect with him and um, he did a demo for us that we were really impressed by. And the idea was like, how do you take um, Caribbean music that I think is so known for being upbeat and happy? Mm-hmm. Um, and how do you make that somber? How do you make that even spooky? Uh, and he yeah. did such a fantastic job of thinking about, okay, how can you use steel pan in a way that is haunting rather than, um, like, exciting? And one of the, um, one of the like, uh, touchstones we had in talking about the music for a while is, do you remember the, the trailer for Us, the Jordan Peele movie? Yes. Um, and yes. there's a song, I Got Five, on it. Uh-huh. Um, but it's, like, a cover of that song that's, like, slow and dark and, uh-huh. like, so spooky. Uh-huh. And we were like, how do you make I Got Five on it? <laughs> the spooky that's version, it. but for <laughs> Calypso. <laughs> and um, Oh, that's great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, so, it does work, too, because it has a... It has a haunting kind of almost like it's it, it's it's scary. It's a little bit nostalgic. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just kind of has all of the trappings of what I think that you need for the the canvas that you're working on. Yeah, yeah. yeah I just I, I that that makes me feel really good to hear because I um I just love like being able to show. 
Caribbean music and Caribbean instruments in a slightly different way. Mm-hmm. Um, and we could go really deep on this, but you know, steel pan, uh, the instrument, which is invented in Trinidad, but you know, people play pan in Grenada and Barbados and, and other parts of, especially that part of the um, of the Caribbean. Um, that it's you know, it has this like. I just feel like it's the music that you hear when you're going to some sort of like beach bar mm-hmm. in Key West yep, exactly. and then it's like kind of hokey yes. and it's just like a yes. lot of covers of like the little mermaid. Yes. I don't know. And but it's just but it's such a, a like a cool instrument with this really interesting history because steel pan came out of um, kind of like anti-colonialist movements mm-hmm. and like and uh, were made originally out of like oil drums of people who were working for British oil companies and were, you know, like uh, trying to um uh, 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 bring about like workers' movements and um, and just it's such a rich instrument that I think can speak to a lot of different mm-hmm. feelings and mm-hmm. emotions and I, it was cool to be able to highlight some of that uh, musical history in a different way or, yeah. or kind of uh, bring a different tonality to like what makes. Caribbean music, Caribbean. Yeah, because it, it sounds familiar, but not. Do you know what I mean? If does that make sense? I mean, the instrument sounds familiar, but the melody, the tone of it sounds like not mm-hmm. something you're used to hearing. And that's probably because most, I mean, a lot of audiences you know, are probably not used to hearing it unless you're paying attention to Caribbean music. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, and you mentioned your mom, too, and she's in the first episode. <laughs> Was your family... Like excited about you digging into this? I'm kind of curious. We talked about like Maurice Bishop and his parents, and you know, you know, your parents probably have an idea about she works at the Washington Post and she does what she does there. But were they excited that you were kind of digging into this history in the place that they live? I think they were generally. My mom was very cautious about like she didn't want me to harass her friends about like. <laughs> this is kind of what I was wondering. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, like, <laughs> yeah. That that there was sometimes a talking to of like, okay, so and so was coming over for dinner. Do not ask them your questions around <laughs> Bishop's body. <laughs> like, you can do that another time, but don't do it at the table. Um, and, uh, yeah, so there was definitely some of that. Uh, my dad, so um, my dad's not from the Caribbean at all. He's from Northern California. Yeah. Um, but he's a big history buff. And, honestly, I think he knows more about, like, the history of the revolution and oh, stuff than my mom does. Only because, I mean, my mom remembers a lot of it and in, in terms of, you know, her of hearing the news in Trinidad and stuff. Yeah. But, um, but my dad has, like, gone back to read the books and to um, kind of understand the different accounts. And so I think he was excited about, like, my interest in wanting yeah. to nerd out about yeah and you know what would have happened if bishop had had, had uh called an election earlier and maybe that would have changed oh, like yeah. how things eventually unfolded and um yeah that he um i, I think that he is really really interested in this history yeah, and so like he was eager helpful. to hear yeah. some answers around this question and uh, around the bodies that's great um so how did you become a podcaster? Um, you, you, you know, talk about your career of how you got into this, you know, this, this, uh, this, what I think before there was podcasting, you know, we talked in journalism a lot about like video is the future. Yeah. <laughs> like, I don't know that people understood that audio storytelling was going to become such a mainstay. So how did, how did you get into this? Wow. That's a great question. Um, I just loved listening to audio yeah. <laughs> is, is I think the, the simple way of saying it. So I, um, I was like big into journalism in high school. Like I did mm-hmm. my school newspaper and where'd you grow up? Uh, Miami. Okay. Um, and so, Great uh, journalism town. Yeah, yeah. 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 And so I grew up reading the Miami Herald. Um, and I think that was part of it too, of, of, you know, I'd see that, I always remember whenever there was a hurricane, um, especially a big one, and the Miami Herald would show up on our on our you know front lawn the next day, and I was like, oh my god! Like, how did they do how this? They Put out this here? newspaper in the, in the middle of a of a hurricane. Um, but so I was um, doing my school newspaper in high school, and I think I just people would tell you know teachers would say that I was good at writing, and I was mm-hmm. like, oh, I guess I'm good at writing. Maybe I should do something. Yeah, I like should that. do it with it. Yeah, yeah. And so mm-hmm. I kind of continued down that path and did the school newspaper in college, and was very much like, okay, well, I want to be a journalist, so I guess I'm going to work at newspapers yeah. and like be a writer. And if I could like do that professionally, I would have achieved you know all of my dreams, and that would be in and of itself like a big success. Um, but what happened was, so after college, I was an intern, and then I was hired at the Boston Globe. And I was a GA reporter, general assignment, for um, a few years. 
And oftentimes that meant like waking up or getting woken up early in the morning by this assignment editor. Um, Mike Bella, if you're listening to this, shout out to you. Um, <laughs> and he would be like, okay, someone has been you know murdered in this part of New Hampshire and like you need to go there right now yep. to cover this press conference at 1030 or whatever. And so a lot of my time was just in the car driving to mm. places. Mm. And um, this was like pre, this was pre-serial. Um, and so the podcast boom had not yet started, but there were shows like This American Life and Radio Lab, um, 99% Invisible, mm-hmm. like shows that I that I had started to download. I think like like I guess I think I might have been downloading them on my iPod still. Yeah, at some right. Point. You probably had to put like the headphones on or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And I yeah. remember because it, it was like the headphones in the car, and that's like probably not okay. Um, but I just remember being in the car listening to these stories and hearing something so special in them that I felt like I couldn't replicate in print, Mm -hmm. that I'd like be driving to this place where I'm about to talk to somebody whose loved one has died. And it's going to be incredibly like emotional and me as a reporter that I like hear this emotion in their voice. And I, I can like feel what it's like to hear them tell me about something that's incredibly important to them. And then I come back to the newsroom and then I write it in a story and I read it in print and it just it's like not the same. It's not capturing it. Yeah. And then I would hear the um, I'd hear these these stories from Radiolab or This American Life where I was like that like that has the thing that I hear when I'm reporting, but that I can't like give to people. And so for like three or four years, I was like, but it's too late. I'm 22 years old and I, <laughs> My I've already decided to be a newspaper reporter. So <laughs> I'm I a guess... G reporter at the Globe. <laughs> yeah. This is it. Yeah, exactly. Like I can never, I can never do podcasts. Um, I just missed, <laughs> missed my opportunity, but then it was not actually the case. And, no. um, and but I, when I came to the post, I was covering transportation originally. Right, you were, you were on Metro covering transportation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then, um, to their credit, I mean, even like even from before I was hired, I was like, okay, I, I run, I want this job, but I also want to let you know that I love audio and I want to do stuff with audio. Please okay, so you kind of let them audio. know that. Yeah, yeah. And we didn't have a daily podcast when you yes, when yes, you showed up. Yes. Um, and so uh, people were like kindly sort of nodding and like, yeah, sure. Yeah, you can do audio if you want, in addition to covering a, like a Metro beat. Um, and um, You're going to do your job though, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah I, I think that was the, understandably the biggest concern. Um, but uh, it, it took a few years, but then eventually um, when they were starting on daily podcasts and I've been trying to like – get involved in other ways. Um, we have a politics podcast and the host of that, she had been out on um, parental leave. And so I was filling in for her while I was still doing my job and just finding like any little toehold of mm-hmm. audio to be able to make the case of, oh, I've developed a, a set of skills that I can, um, uh, uh, that, that, that would help me be a valuable yeah. part of like the post audio future. And yeah. so, so then they started a daily podcast and I applied for a job. I guess I've never asked you. Did you have to? You had to audition for it, basically. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. No, it was. Um, yeah, it was. Uh, my audition. I interviewed David Farenthold and Carlos Lozada. Um, I never knew this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were both very lovely, and and yeah. other people. Sadly, um, two colleagues no longer with us. They work for the New York Times. Yeah. Woof. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't even think about that. Um, <laughs> But uh, but yeah, so it was. Uh, they had to be interviewed about the same story four different times, which oh I guess they're gosh. used to because you know when you have a big story and um, you know you'll be on CNN and MSNBC or whatever. But it's so cool that that's how we how what we the post did it was like the cre- re- okay go do an interview. Yeah 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 yeah. yeah. Um, and so I was thinking about like okay what can I bring in particular to this interview that um, that maybe other people wouldn't. And so I was um, very lucky to get this job, but yeah. also I felt like my hope is that my passion for audio <laughs> really came through that I was like, oh, it's not even that I want to be a host on this podcast. I just want to work on this podcast. Right. And if it's as the host, that's great. That's or if great. it's something else too, That, but I just like want this podcast to be successful. And I think it's this great avenue for, you know, sharing the voices yeah. of these people that I just love working with. And in the same way of, of how I was feeling, you know, driving home from these stories in mm-hmm. Boston is mm-hmm. that like you read a story in a front page story in the post and there's certainly 
a power to it um, and a clarity to it. But then I would run into that reporter, you know, like standing at the coffee shop and being like, oh, I like I saw your story about this. It was so good. And then they'd be describing more what it was like to report that story. And I was like, this is the best part. Like, that's the part that I want to hear. And so that's what I love about audio. And and, um, what I'm really proud of with our our daily podcast is being able to to share that part of uh, what it means to be a journalist. Yeah. And I think and as as someone who loves coming on the podcast, it's it's in kind of a reciprocal fashion. We get to talk about the story in a way that you can't get across in print. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it, not just because there's a formality to print and there's a kind of economy of language that you have to have in there. But I don't get to tell the story in a natural voice so much. Right. Mm-hmm. So it says so going on a podcast is another way of telling the story. And I think for, for journalists, that's just like it's it, it's incredibly valuable. It's not just oh, I'm just coming on to talk about the story. It's I get to convey the story differently mm-hmm. than mm-hmm. I would if I was writing it in print. I'm glad to hear you say that. Yeah, no, it's 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 a real thing. And did you? How did you feel being like the inaugural host of the Post's daily podcast? And and talk about making a daily podcast because people turn on their podcast feed and they take it for granted that it is there. It is a tremendous amount of work. Oh yeah, yeah, it really is. And I mean, to to it's it all of it is impossible without the like army. I mean, it's a small army, but it feels like a, a strong, small army of producers who work on our podcasts who are um, just honestly working their butts off they really uh, are. day in and day out to be able to make these like incredibly compelling tape-rich stories on super tight deadlines. I mean, deadlines that are down to like 15-minute marks of like, okay, if we tape with Shane at 11.45, we get the cut by like 12.40, and then we can do the like final edits by 1.15, and then it has to get to the mixer by 1.45. And um, so so a lot of it is like really tight deadlines and people who are working really hard to, um, to make it possible. Um, but coming in as the host, it was, I think, I mean, I was so nervous. <laughs> I was so nervous. I, like, I don't think I ate for like two weeks. And I love to eat. So, like, I must have been in like a real form of um, oh. acute stress uh, if I like wasn't eating in the the couple of weeks um, before it came out. Because it's, you know, it's the post and it's a big institution with a lot of history and you want to. And we'd never do done right this. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, but also the thing that I felt so strongly about that I hope is um, audible in, in, in um, post reports and in, in the empty grave of Comrade Bishop and the other you know audio that we do is a sense of authenticity and I just wanted you know that like there's a, there's a certain way that I think people talk when they're on TV mm-hmm. um, which is understandable because TV is such a different medium um, but that I wanted to make sure that conversations felt like how I would be talking to someone at a dinner party or at mm-hmm. happy hour, you know, that this is just like you and me chatting together. Yep. And if you say something that I don't understand, I'm just going to say that I don't understand it. Or, um, you know, that I'm like a stand in for people who are just making their dinner and aren't that engaged with the news um, or don't know the latest about a story and that we can have, you know, a real human conversation and back and forth about like trying to grapple with, okay, so like, what does that mean? Like, why did that happen? That was really surprising to me. Like, I didn't understand that headline. Um, and so I think that was my real priority is kind of, um, yeah, trying to kind of push back against the, the instinct, I think, in a lot of ways to sound more authoritative or um, knowledge, knowledgeable than you really are and instead yep. be myself uh, on mic. And I don't think I always achieve that, but I, I generally try to. I think I think that we as reporters and we're and we're trained for this is we often hide behind the brand or the kind of authority of the paper and you kind mm-hmm. of and it's and, and you know it's fine to have you know I mean, it's journalism to be conveyed with a sense of authority and confidence and it's written the same way all the time and that can be good but I think it makes us less accessible to the reader mm-hmm. and it kind of and it puts a distance between me and the person who's reading the story and it feels like audio and the way specifically the audio is developed into a kind of more casual or realistic way of talking to people mm-hmm. and an ability to be vulnerable in audio, like the way you were just sitting here talking or as you said, like at a dinner party, it closes that distance. And I wonder, do you think that that makes, does it add credibility? Like, does it make it, is it easier for the listener to kind of trust the journalist when they can hear her talking like yeah. that? Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. No, definitely. I mean, we talk about this a lot that, especially with younger audiences who um, are a lot more skeptical of like the Walter Cronkite voice, for for yeah. lack of a better term. Um, but that kind of 
projecting that we know everything, people don't buy because yeah. they know that we don't we know don't everything and that there is a lot of distrust in the media or um, even like misunderstanding about the media and how we do our jobs and where we get information from. And so to me, it feels like the way to be able to tap into that trust and to be able to like build a sense of, um, you know, we are people that that are working hard to try to um, explain things in the clearest, most accurate way possible is by speaking like real people yes. and saying, you know, this is like not only this is the headline, but so, OK, this is the process that we went through of trying to figure out what we you know what we know and this is what we don't know and you know i actually had a reaction of surprise or confusion when i saw this because mm -hmm. like it didn't make sense to me either and then um and then i talked to these other people and i think that going through those steps um meets people where they're at and also you know ultimately makes you m more trustworthy yeah and i think in 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 the podcast i mean you comrade bishop you you're doing that, right? It's very much the reporter's notebook kind of format where we're following you along as you uncover the story. And there's a compelling, dramatic narrative thrust to that. But it's also incredibly honest, right? You are surprised. You do do go down wrong paths. You know, you do have assumptions corrected. You do find, you know, things that are new. And I think it actually makes you as a narrator more reliable. Like, mm. it's because it's like you're just talking like a normal person, <laughs> which is just not how we're trained to do it. And it's also business. hard. I mean, you, I think you know this better than anyone, that it's it's hard to turn off the 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 part of you that wants to kind of deliver information like you are in a totally. print story. Yeah. And that, you know, the the one of the most challenging things in audio is to write in a way that sounds natural. <laughs> even though you would think that it would it's be really hard, um, that it would be intuitive. But yeah. in any case, it's not. Yeah. And are you finding that, I mean, you chose to do a story you talk about like you know like the importance of reaching younger audiences, and at the post we talk a lot about trying mm -hmm. to reach younger audiences. And, and for listeners, it's a big thing that like big people with big brains are trying yeah. to spend a lot of time on right now. You chose to tell a story that's you know it's it's forty years old. I mean mm -hmm. it it you know it, it will resonate with people in Grenada, but it's it's a piece of history. So what did you what did you kind of rely on to make it relevant? I mean you got a built in mystery, which is great. Yeah, yeah. I, I it's almost like the lack of understanding about that or a lack of like knowledge of, or at least knowledge among Americans about Grenada to me was like the strength of the story and that like oh generally no American remembers this yeah. and knows anything about this so like I'm telling you a story completely from scratch yep. and um, and I and I think that kind of helped to you know when I mentioned certain, certain twists and turns or like allusions to things that I know will be surprising to most people that we can kind of lean into the surprise because I'm like, oh, you don't know what's going to happen. Like, mm -hmm. if you were paying attention to like geopolitics in 1983, you would know what's happening next, yeah. but you weren't. So like yeah, yeah. now you get to be surprised, and yeah. that's great. Yeah. Um, but I think it also just taps into, you know, questions that people are thinking about a lot now, um, and specifically, you know, like after what two summers ago and pull out of Afghanistan and mm -hmm. like that what what it means when the US invades a country um, and what are like what are the different ways that you can view something like that are we rescuing people are we intervening are we um, you know like tromping on this other country in a way that's very much like unappreciated mm -hmm. um, and like yeah, what is what is America's role here? What is the legacy of that? In many ways, like this little invasion was truly the best case scenario of any American invasion, right? It's like we go in, combat is over in three days. We stay for a few months. We like oversee a next election, and like by next year, we are out and like never have to go back to Grenada. Mm -hmm. And it was a real win for Reagan. Um, but I think even with that best case scenario, the fact that you have so many of these like lingering questions and um, kind of like unresolved legacies of like, was it a good thing? Was it a bad thing? Like, why did America come here? Did it leave Grenada in a better place? Did it leave Grenada in a worse place? Like, why is it that we can't get answers on some of the things that happened while the U.S. was here? That I think that that really resonates with anyone who's been paying attention to like you, the U.S. trying to figure out what is its role in the world today. Mm -hmm. So by the time people hear this conversation, I think episode five will have just dropped. Yeah. So I'm not going to ask you to give away any endings, but I mean, how are you feeling about the story? And, you know, should be there be things that people might want to anticipate? I don't know how much you want to say. But. Yeah, there, <laughs> there's just a lot. <laughs> um, I would say that 
I think that we left the best for last. Oh, okay. Like the I That's I do think that like the 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 moments that have genuinely shocked me in the reporting are moments that we have not yet gotten to. Oh, okay. And I am excited to he- for people to hear those moments. Nice, nice. Um, well, that's great. I'm excited too because I'm caught up and I'm just dying for the next oh, episode. Good, yeah, good. that's good. Uh, so it is our tradition on Chatter that the very last question I ask you is contained in this the Chatter box. Ooh. So I select a <laughs> surprise. <laughs> <laughs> I, I this is a there are pre-written questions. I select one at random. Wow, so gonna, I love this idea. Can I steal that? Can yeah, of course. This, this be a post report? Absolutely, thing? absolutely. Okay, I'm gonna reach in here and grab it for you. I hope it's a good one. Okay. Oh, actually, I think this is a good one. This goes with various themes what we've been talking mm. about. Uh, in what country other than your own would you most like to live, and why? Oh. I mean, it depends on how long you're talking about living. Let's say like, okay, let's say like, maybe like three years minimum, let's just say. Three years. Doesn't necessarily mean like for the rest of your life. I feel like this is too thematically similar. (laughs) But um, so I I lived in Trinidad for a year Uh um, when I was in uh, when I was in my 20s. And I would love to go back. And I just think it's like this fascinating, like, like, crazy place that has, you know, all kinds of problems that are very similar to the U.S.'s problems, but very different from the U.S.'s problems, too. And, um, I, you know, I just think that, like, the, the English-speaking Caribbean, mm-hmm. you know, we, like, we talk a lot about Cuba and, um, and of course, Haiti, the DR, you know, like, that, that the part of the Caribbean that's closer to the U.S., um, for lots of understandable reasons, I think, is um, what we talk about in, you know, when it comes to, like, how this place is affected by the world and its effect on the rest of the world. But I think the bottom of the Caribbean is like the coolest place. And it has all these crazy intersections of, um, of, uh, of like different parts of the world that I, I just, I just love and Trinidad in particular, I could, I could go back there live for another three years happily write and make and produce a bunch of stories and um, and that would be my dream. I love this. You could open the Trinidad Bureau of the Washington Post. Honestly, from your lips to God's ears. I mean... I just bought a house in D.C., so I don't know if that's like necessarily <laughs> in the cards anymore, but um, but it would be... Yeah, I have, I have like a whole list of stories that I'm like ready to pump out for the Washington Post if they'd let me live, live We got a new publisher. Now's the time to get in there with this idea. Yeah. He's looking for ideas. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, Martine Powers, my friend, this has been so much fun. Oh, thank, thank you, you for, for doing this. Thank you for making this podcast, The Empty Grave of Comrade thank Bishop. You for it's terrific. It is a great story. You're going to learn so much. People are going to have a great time. It is a tremendous mystery. I can't wait to see what happens. And I'm so grateful you came on to talk about it. Thanks. Thank you for having me. This is such an honor and a pleasure. That was Chatter, a production of Lawfare and Goat Rodeo. Please subscribe to the podcast and find us on Twitter at That Was Chatter. Thank you.